Hello and welcome to Delving into Draft. My name is Craig and I'm one of your hosts. Joining me this week is... Steve! This is episode 16. Now let's do a round of how to get in touch with us. Our main protocol is delvingintodraft.tumblr.com. We're also on Facebook as Delving into Draft. Our email is delvingintodraft at gmail.com. And finally, I'm on Twitter as ravak underscore. That's R-A-V-A-K underscore. Now, moving into the news. Protear Gatecrash was last weekend. And that was won by Tom Martell Aristocrats deck. It was also a number of first-time events, I suppose. Um, I mean, Melissa Dottora was the first female to reach the top eight of a Pro Tour. Um, a couple of other of the top eighters, Jerry Thompson and Owen Turnbull, that was the first time the top eight of Pro Tour, so it was a number of firsts. But eventually, you got taken down by Martel after um, Melissa Dottora's winning streak for like 12, 13 rounds or something like that on top. Yeah. How did she do in the draft session? At the very end. Yeah, because it went like she, she went... Undefeated on the first day, and then they did the draft section, and I saw a video on YouTube of the actual, of her drafting her deck, but I never, I couldn't see how she actually did. <laughs> how did she actually get on? Any ideas? I'm not entirely sure. She only got 15 points on a booster draft, which would have meant she dropped a game right. somewhere. Right, oh, that's still pretty good though, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty stellar, let's be yeah. honest. Um, but yeah, so it was Tom Martell who won that, which I think is his first. Pro Tour win? Yeah, I, I don't know. I have no idea, Craig. But Could be wrong. Can I, can I, can I have a voice a little gripe in my own? And it's something that somebody else said to me. It was actually my brother said to me. It was about um, magic events in general. Like, the end of GP London, it's like, and you're the winner of GP London. And it's like, oh, thanks. And then there's a smattering of applause and like uh, Tom Martell at the Pro Tour when he won, there's like a few people standing around. It's like total... Lack of uh, sort of pomp and ceremony when somebody wins. It should be like big explosions and fireworks and ticket tape coming down. You know what I mean? It should be like Formula One where they get up on the podium and they open their bottle of champagne and just shake it everywhere. Yeah, you know, because like it's like ah, shake your hand and have my trophy, and, and the guys can like yeah, you have to hold it up. Mate. It's like oh, I'll hold it up. Okay, right now I've got to go off and speak to somebody now. And he gets rushed away and has to speak to the the coverage guy. I can't remember that guy's name. Oh, it depends who it is at the time, I suppose. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't Marshall and it wasn't BDM. Rich Hagen? No. Another guy. Someone. Yeah, exactly. So okay. the uh, uh Yeah. So that was my little gripe. I, I, I want more you know, I, I want more for uh for winning a pro tour or winning a Grand Prix. I want more excitement, I want more ceremony, you know. I want girls in bikinis and stuff. You know, I, I think that much to ask. I don't think girls in bikinis is a good idea. You sure? Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's kind of maybe a bit, I don't know, sexist, unless there's also topless men at the same time. Here, I'm not, I'm not adverse to that. That's fine. They can do that too. You know, I'll, I'll join in. Okay, as long as you are being equal opportunity uh, and yeah, not discriminating, then... I'm not discriminating at all, but like, compared to Formula One or, I don't know, any other... I don't know. Uh, true, the true other sports do suffer from it. It's just I yeah. don't want to bring I don't want to intentionally bring that flaw into magic. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Okay. But yeah. You know what you know what I'm getting at though. I it's understand. It's just a bit lackluster when like, here's your trophy, mate. <laughs> Thanks. You know. Yeah, there the, it does lack a certain panache. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, enough. Anyway, what we but we can say Tom Martell won Proto Gay Crash. So we can cheer him on. Yay! Woo! Fireworks. 
Okay, uh, something they announced at Pro Tour Gate Crash is from 2014 onwards, there's going to be a fourth Pro Tour. A what, Craig? Well, at the moment, there are three Pro Tours. From 2014, there will be four. Cool. So, more Pro Tour qualifiers? Yeah, the number of Pro Tour qualifiers will probably jump to around 800. It's currently at 660. Yeah, see, I, I, I like this, Craig. That's more opportunities to get your ticket to go and stand and get handed your trophy in a lackluster fashion. And <laughs> it is more opportunities to test your skill in a competitive environment. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, def- it's definitely a good thing. Okay, so normally they have Block Constructed, Standard and Modern. Those are the three Pro Tours at the moment. Yeah. The fourth Pro Tour, which is going to be based around the core set, because at the moment, I mean, we've had Return to Ravnica, we've had Gate Crash, the next one is Dragon's Maze, and then the one after that would just be Friends. Normally right. we don't have one for the core set, but there's now going to be a Pro Tour core set. So we're going to have Pro Tour 2015? Oh, that's going to be confusing, though. Remember about this discussion before about how the core set doesn't match up to the date? Yeah, so in... <laughs> So in summer of 2014, there will be Pro Tour Magic 2015. Yeah, and like because because like when the you you have the title of the Pro Tour, so like Pro, Pro Tour Gate Crash 2013, it'll be like Pro Tour. Uh, oh, it'll be all wrong, Craig. It'll be all wrong. What's going on? Well, who knows? Maybe they will change the core set name to something else. Yeah. In 2014 to make it more sensible, but who knows? <sighs> Anyways, um, so what you're going to see in the 2014, well actually it's 2013 and 2014, so Pro Tour Friends will be in October, which is standard, and that's in Dublin. Then Pro Tour Romans in the winter will be modern. Pro Tour Countrymen in spring will be the block constructed for the Friends block. And then in the summer we'll have the Pro Tour Core Set, which will be standard again. So it looks like you're going to have standard twice in a row if you continue that pattern. Yeah, I'm sure they'll fix that, but... Yeah, but like, what, twice back-to-back? Well, yeah, if you assume... Well, Friends is the first in a block, and it's standard, and the core set is just before a new block, which is also standard. Yeah. So it may mean whatever the Pro Tour after the core set is may also be standard. You may have standard twice in a row, who knows? I guess we'll work that out. Um, Other changes are happening because of this. Because there's more pro points, they're going to change around how many points you need to be in the pro players' club. There's possibly going to be changes in buys, how many Planeswalker points you need for buys. Not entirely sure. I mean, stuff has to be sorted. It is still a while away. You know, the the, the new Pro Tour is only going to appear in, what, over a year's time. So they've got plenty of time to sort of fix everything before then. Yeah. I was just thinking about what you were saying before there about standards being back-to-back. Will that be, do you think, uh, to coincide with set rotation? So it will actually be a very different format from one to the next. That's true. I suppose you will have sort of old standard and then new standard. Yeah. Who knows? Cause, yeah, because it's usually a big, a big difference after, because one, after one core set's gone. You know? Indeed. Right. There was other news. They also announced a second something during the Pro Tour. So, if you are aware, Magic is 20 years old this year. Yay, happy birthday. Um, so in honour of 20 years of Magic the Gathering, they are releasing a new From the Vault, as they do every year. But this is from the Vault 20. Cool. So it celebrates uh, the 20 years of Magic. Uh, unlike previous from the Vaults, which have 15 cards, this will have 20 cards. 
Hey! Now, they are the special From the Vault foily, which, if you haven't seen, they are super, super foily and look really cool. Um, some of these cards will have new art. I mean, they're, they're all reprints. There's not going to be any new cards. So, all reprints. Um, they're taking one card from each year, and the card from each year is uh, from a deck which won one of the big events. So, whether that's a Pro Tour, Worlds, Magic Championship, or whatever it used to be called back in the day before they sort of had the fixed format they got now. So it's going to be a card from a winning deck from each of the 20 years of Magic. Oh, nice. Um, you're also going to receive an exclusive spin-down life counter, as always. There's a collector's guide, as always. Some of these cards will be in the modern frame for the first time. It's only going to be in English. It's going to be an extremely limited print run. Uh, whilst the MSRP is $40, you can imagine it's going to easily go for at least 100 because that generally is what happens. And um, they're only going to be tournament legal in formats where the cards are legal. It's yeah. not all suddenly going to be new standard cards, which are really needs for of or anything like that. Yeah. And that will be out in August the 23rd of this year. Hmm, cool. Right. I think that is all the news from this week. Yeah. I don't have any news. Do you have any news? Ah, yes, actually, sorry. There are two Grand Prix coming up next weekend. They're probably worth mentioning. So, there is a Grand Prix in Quebec City, not terribly far from Montreal, I suppose. It is standard, and then there's also Grand Prix Charlotte, which is in North Carolina. It is Gatecrash Shield Deck and Booster Draft. Cool. So, if you're not in North America, then you've been out of luck. But if you are in North America, you've got two things to choose from, so yay. <laughs> so, that's the 23rd and the 24th of February this year. Right, that is all the news, or at least I'm saying it is. So we're cool. Done. Right. Now let's move on to our first topic. Okay, cool. So, we're about drafting, right? I think so. Although, the last episode, or maybe the last two, we've been a bit self-indulgent, haven't we, Craig? Um, possibly. Talking about our, our, our experiences and things. Possibly. Well, you know, uh, we're, we're interesting people. I'm sure everybody wants to hear everything about us. Yeah. And, yeah, of course and, they do. And, you know, people are jealous of our accents, so there's also that. Who? <laughs> I'm sure someone out there is jealous <laughs> of our accents. Anyways, let's maybe move on. So let's talk about drafting, drafting tactics specifically. Um, All right, cool. So we're going to be talking about drafting tactics, and we're going to be talking about two specific ways about how you draft. Now, these are pretty wide-ranging, and they cover most ways of how to draft. So one way of drafting is to force a deck. You're going into the draft either with a specific deck in mind, or possibly... When you open your first card and you see your rare and you go, Obsidat, I'm now wanting to be the Orzov player. And you just yeah. force Orzov relentlessly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that a lot of players do that without realising it. So that, like, even where it's not particularly appropriate, so they might open, uh, you know, a, a sort of re- reasonably good rare, something they could get a little excited about, maybe, maybe not even that good a rare, depending on the player. Maybe, especially young players might get excited about, um, something big, green, and stumpy. Uh, I'm thinking, like, what was that big, stupid thing that Oh, you, the Scar Goliath, you're not a Yeah, fan Scar of. Goliath, or, or Sylvan Primordial, or something like that. Something big and stumpy, and they just force that colour, and I think a lot of people do that. On like a Friday Night Magic or that, but especially like uh, less experienced players, this is something to be aware of, I suppose. Yeah. Now there are advantages of forcing a deck. Uh, it's, it's basically like uh, 
you're trying to manipulate the table. So you're trying, you're, I mean, I think where we should maybe start is, is talking about just the process of drafting and understanding how, uh, the actual draft works. And it sounds a really stupid thing to say, but when you take cards out of pack and pass them to your left, the next person has a limited number of options. And if you're forcing and you take those particular colours or the cards that fit in a very specific archetype for the entire first pack, then people down the line from you along the table aren't going to have had those options. And even if they're not paying attention to signalling or other tactics, their picks are going to be uh, affected by what you've taken. And the idea is obviously that when you get past packs from them, you get the benefits because they are now not picking the cards in your archetype or your your deck. Uh, so you end up with, hopefully, a better deck because of it. Yeah, because if you're taking away Aurelia and then you're taking away the Sky Knight Legionnaire and you're taking away the Firefist Striker and the Syndic of Tides and you just keep getting all the good red and white cards, they're not seeing them. They're not going to be tempted by the, those colours. Yeah. And they're going to leave it alone. And then when it comes back to you in the second pick, they're not taking them away from you, so you get more options about good cards in those colours you've sort of forced yeah. yourself. And like, if you are forcing like that, if you are really aggressively taking cards which fit your deck, and even maybe taking cards which you maybe might not even play, but would uh, fit into, would be playable in your deck, for, you know, as an example, you might take uh, I mean, that's a bad example. But say for say you had choices between like a syndicatives, and you're playing Boroths, and maybe even like an elusive crisis or something like this, and you're only impact two or three, you might be tempted to take the syndicatives just so nobody's playing white downwind from you. And then the, because you've done that, somebody is probably going to be playing Simic because the crisis is there. You know. Now, while the good side is that you're you're clearly sort of marking your territory and the person to your left is giving a very good idea that they can't draft that, so they're just going to leave those colours of cards alone, the disadvantages is you could be the person on your left. Yeah. So far as the, the, you are getting pass packs where you are being cut from those colours. So you open, you know, Prime Speaker Zagana and you're going, I want to be Simic. Well, unfortunately, maybe the person to your right is similar, similarly wanting to go Simic, whether they're forcing it, whether it's just because they're getting the good cards and that seems like the best choice for them, they may be cutting you. And then yeah. if they're taking those cards and you are just got the blinkers on, you're taking suboptimal green and blue cards, well, the word suboptimal means you're going to get a worse deck. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think uh, here it's worth going back to how the draft works again, because in that first pack you're passing to the left, and which means that you have complete control over what the person to your left gets, which is a lot of power to have, you know? And But the same is true of the person to your right. They have complete control over what you get. So this is where forcing kind of becomes less optimal, <laughs> is the word I think I'm looking for you, the, when you're getting cut yourself. You know, if somebody else is mindlessly taking that archetype or taking that colour or combination of colours. Yep. Right, so when do you force a deck? Uh, I mean, I think you already 
touched on one of the main ones is when you open a very strong card in your first pack and you think, oh, I don't know, you even some like, is it Boris Reckoner, the red, white, three mana guy? Yeah. Something like that. You open something like that and you say, right, well, I really want to play Boros now, you know? So, and you force that. Uh, other situations you might consider a particular deck to be the most powerful deck in the format, you know? And I think we're, we're maybe a bit early in Gate Crash to say this is the most powerful deck, but, uh, you might be tempted by Simic or Orthov or even Boros, you know? And, uh, like I said, I think it's maybe a bit early to say which is the most powerful one, but certainly in formats we've had before, like Avison, you could quite clearly see that green and blue was the strongest archetype to play. Like the green and blue cards were just so much better than the other ones. And uh, it was a really legitimate strategy to force green and blue if you were given the opportunity to do it. And uh, just, uh, yeah, I suppose, I'm trying to think, of, I mean, would you, would you force a, an underdrafted archetype, Craig? I mean, again, if you're talking about Avacyn Restored, where black was, the black sheep, no pun intended, of the set, like nobody yeah. wanted to be black, um, you could be the person at the table targeting black and aggressively taking it. Yeah. And you will get a good deck because no, everybody else is staying clear of it, you know. Yeah. It's sort of like the pariah in the set. Don't, don't go black because it's bad. Well, if you're the only person getting all the bad cards, you're going to get a good deck out of it because yeah. there is power in quantity and some of those cards did have pure quality, but only if you were the black player. Yeah, and there's definitely opportunities to do that, like, early in a format. Like, um, with Return of Ravnica, is it was a bit like that. At the start, everybody was a little bit unsure what is it was trying to do, and you could force a really strong is it deck, or you could, I mean, sometimes, yeah, I mean, like, would you consider forcing Demir just now? I could easily see it. Like, go into the draft beforehand, say, right, I'm just going to not pay attention to anything else that's going on. I'm going to pick Demir cards because nobody's really... Well, not nobody, people are clocking on that it's actually really powerful when you get the cards together. The uh, But... Yeah, if, it, you, if you feel other people are going are going to go for the obvious decks at your table and you can just be the one sort of Demir player taking all those mill cards... Uh, all those cipher cards, getting the elusive creatures which can just get through and make your cipher worth the effort. People yeah. are going to avoid it because they're going to go, I don't want to be the Demir player. Yeah, you know, exactly. People are going to actively see cipher and sort of hiss and recoil and, you know, shudder and pick something else because it doesn't have cipher on it, doesn't have the Demir watermark, whatever. So yeah. you can easily go in now. I, I feel Gruel is in the same place as, I think Gruel is maybe more pariah. But that's maybe just my personal feelings. Yeah, I think I think maybe in our playgroup it is to a certain extent, but I'm not sure. Like Magic Online, I've not really noticed that so much. Okay. Like uh, there's a lot of. I mean, Gruel like, Gruel is a strong deck. I mean, the car the the quality of the cards is kind of more obvious than Demir. Which yeah. Is essentially, why Demir is more of a avoided deck. Yeah. 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 Okay, so that's that's forcing a deck, I guess. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So, 
the other broad strategy would be reactive drafting. So instead of coming in with a strong idea in mind or opening your first rare and going, right, you know, I have Borboric Moss, I am now Gruel, you just go, okay, I've taken Borboric Moss, he's a strong card, but that doesn't mean I should just go green and red and just ignore everything else happening around me. Yeah. Because again, if you're the person, if the person to your right somehow forces Gruel, then you may start seeing, well, actually, they're passing quite a lot of nice white cards and quite a lot of nice black cards because they're not interested in that. There's actually a really good Orzov deck here. So maybe I should, you know, it's it's a shame I won't be able to play Borgmore Goss Enraged, but if I'm getting past the good, good Orzov cards, then maybe here's my deck. Maybe where I'm sitting on the table should be drafting Orzov because I'm just going to get past it more than other colors. Yep. And that is sort of reactive drafting. Yeah, I mean, it's about just accepting what you're getting from the person on your left, really. Like, when you're forcing, back and forcing again, you, you, you're really taking control of your draft in that sense. But when you're being reactive, you're trying to keep things open, or at least I would be, trying to keep things open and just going with the flow of the draft, you know? Yeah. So, uh, what do you think the main advantages of reactive drafting are over forcing? Well, if, assuming someone is so the person to your right and uh, the first and third packs is specifically going for something, then advantages are you're getting reasonably clear signals that whilst one deck isn't available to you, everything else is. Yeah. So, you know... If they are taking ores off, which is white and black, then that means green and red and blue are open to you. And you've got a choice between two decks there. Yeah. Depending on what's coming to you. Uh, you could even potentially be in one of their two colors because they're not going to, they're going to be passing the gold cards, for example. So whilst, you know, sort of one option's being cut away, you're given free reign over the other options. Yeah. And the, 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 thing when you're being reactive is your first pack ends up with a few wasted picks in it because you, uh, you'll see packs when they come to you and you'll be looking at them. And I think a good example of this was that draft I saw with Melissa Dottora because she was drafting Orzov and the first few picks were fairly solid Orzov cards. can't remember exactly what they were. It was There was maybe a Kingpin's Pet and a black or white rare. I can't remember exactly, but Early in the first pack, she got past a Boris Reckoner. Not Boris, what am I talking about? She got past a uh, Sky Knight Legionnaire. And uh, she saw that and said, well, that's a pretty strong card in Boris. I think I'll have that. And ended up not playing it. But it was all about keeping her options open in case she got some more goodies past, you know. And so the reactive drafting, you're really trying to find the right colours for your seat. Whereas when you're forcing, you're trying to make the colours come to you in that sense. You, you're trying, you're making the, the you're, you're really trying to influence what the other players at the table are doing. Yeah. You know? Uh, in reactive drafting, you're riding the waves versus forcing a deck, you're trying to control the waves. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good analogy because like, like when you're drafting, the, it's really like a flow of information you're getting. It's not, like, you can just jump all over a card. It's not like you can say, right, I just got past a third pick, Sky Knight Legionnaire, or Legionary. I keep saying Legionnaire. Legionnaire. It's it's Legionnaire. Legionnaire. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, cool. And, uh, ah, that's it. I'm Boros now. You, it's a case of taking the information and maybe if you get past the Legionnaire and then the next, next pick a, a Boros charm and then the next pick something else. And you're able to build up that information and say, well, it does look like that's open, but it's not like you just get one card and, you know, you're all over it, you know? Yeah, because that's almost forcing a deck after a few picks of reactive drafting. Yeah. It's almost going, right, I'll see what the first three things are. Okay, fourth pick is a uh, Shamble Shark or something like that. Simic. Simic. Just going Simic. Cause yeah. clear, clearly the Shamble Shark is a huge shout and not necessarily. It may have just slipped through the cracks, effectively. Yeah, and... You've got to be really careful as well because, I mean, we'll maybe talk about it when we're talking about signaling more, but it's very dangerous jumping all over a third pick as well for other reasons, but maybe we'll come to that later. When, when are you looking at reactive drafting, Craig? When, what, what are your reasons for doing it, like, I mean, if as you, a plan? If you don't open the crazy rare, which is going to make you happy, then there's a good place not to force a deck, and thus you're almost moving instantly into reactive drafting. Yeah. Um, also, if you if you actually get a rare, or the first few picks are... You can keep yourself quite open. Like, maybe you get a hybrid card. Well, a hybrid card can go in three different guilds. Uh, yeah. Sorry, right? Four, four different guilds. Um, three. Sorry. I'm, I'm doing yeah, bad math. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, if I open Boros Reckoner, I can play Gruul, I can play Boros, I can play Orzov. So that keeps me quite open. And my second pick, I, I don't know, maybe I take Riot Gear, which is an artifact, or I get Thespian Stage. I wouldn't high, I wouldn't recommend picking Thespian Stage up high, but maybe you do for some reason. And you, you're quite open. Then that's where you can also reactively draft because you've kept your options open and none of your first few picks are necessarily bad. Um, because they can go in any deck, so. Yeah. I mean, is there an argument for, even before the draft starts, saying, I want to be drafting reactively regardless of what I open? So, you open Ozbid, Obzidat, yeah. the Ghost Council guy, right? Are you automatically forcing Orzov, or are you sitting back and saying, well, I would really like to be Orzov, but I'll see what comes? I think, the ideal is potentially a middle ground. Ideally, you want to force Boros off if you open Obsidat. But if you're get, you need to, you need, so actually this is what we're about to come on to, which is signaling. It's about, even though you want to do something, you just have to react to the information you're getting given. Yeah, but I mean, like, those first three picks, you don't really get a lot of information because packs are so random. So what I'm saying is, You've you've got to have made a decision beforehand. Well, not, maybe not, depending on how you're going, but of whether you're forcing or whether you're drafting reactively. So, would your first three picks be, I am taking the best Orzov cards, or would your first three picks be, I'm taking the best cards? If, you know, it's, if it's Obsidat, I think that is such a strong card, you ideally want to be able to play it, and thus you force. Yeah. If, you're, if your first rare isn't maybe as great, maybe... Uh, Molten Primordial, for example, then you maybe just take the best cards with an eye to... You know, if you're stuck between two choices, say, maybe you go for the more red of the two choices. Yeah. But it it, it depends on the strength of your initial rare, I would say. Yeah. I think, I think, you're, I think you're definitely right. 
I don't know. He sound too stupid. Yeah, well, it's just because my own strategy's changed a lot over over time. So when I first started, uh, and even now to a certain extent, there's decks I kind of uh, have a kind of love affair with. <laughs> so, see, like, kind of, like, I think we talked about this last week, or maybe the week before, but it's a of um, gimmicky decks that I like. So I'll often force gimmicky decks because they're fun. You know, more than just uh, with all out trying to win, win the, win the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the draft. But the uh, my, my strategy's kind of changed from then to, to now. Where I'm where where nearly draft reactively all the time. So, like, even if I'm opening Obsidat, if I get past a, I don't know, say the best card in the pack was a Home and Lightning or something, pick two. I'd probably be taking that, even though double red would be pretty shady with the double white and black. Yeah. I could be wrong. You know? Just because I like keeping options open like that, you know? But maybe I, that's, maybe I'm crazy. I, I, I base it more on the rare, the strength of the rare. Also, also, there are some decks I would rather not play. Like, I would say Gruel ideally wouldn't want to play personally. That's a personal preference. Uh, Golgari is potentially a much stronger thing to suggest from Return to Ravnica. I would ideally try to avoid that. So, even yeah. it, so, like whilst I would t- t- like take the Golgari rare, like if if, if I open, uh, you know, if Jared was there, I'd take Jared. Even if it was something a bit weaker, um, I can't even think of anything off the top of my head. But you know, even if it was something a bit weaker, I'd take it. But I'd want to, I'd be more reactive in that particular instance. Whereas if I open Niv-Mizzet, and I'm a big Izzet player, I would be looking more to force the early, earlier picks if I can. And yeah. then start being a bit more reactive. Yeah, that's, that's another another reason for forcing, I suppose, as well. You might just have personal preference. You might just think to yourself, well, this deck is better in my hands than is on average. You know, you might consider yourself to be a fantastic aggro player, so you may want to draft the best aggro deck in the format rather than simply the best deck in the format, or the opposite may be true of wanting to play the best control deck, you know. So, like, there's another reason to force, I suppose, is if you think a particular deck is better in your hands, you know, just because of your play style or whatever, you know. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So... Signaling. Should we move on to that? Yeah, I think so, because we've talked about it a couple of times. It's maybe worth going into it and uh, explaining what it is. What's, what is signaling, Craig? So, signaling is where there's two parts. You can send signals and you can receive signals. So, so if you want to send a signal, you're trying to tell the person to your left, if it's the first pack or the third pack, what to not play, what to avoid, or what to play. Like, if you open Obsidat, and you pass it. You're you're very strongly signaling to the person to your left. Here is an exceptionally powerful Orzov card. Go play Orzov, and I'll sort of you know I'll leave you alone. I'll pass you Orzov cards as long as you sort of leave the other cards alone. Yeah. You can do it the other way around. Now, if you pass them a pack and it's got no red in it and no green in it, uh, whether you know it just happened to be a fluke that you know there was only one card which was green and red and the entire thing and you took Dormy Raid or something like that and you pass it to them, they're going to look and go right. There's not much red. There's not much green. I kind of want to be looking elsewhere. That's also 
Yeah, I, th- I think those sort of signals come into play more later in the pack. Yeah. Rather, you know, you're talking first pick, I realise that because we were talking about that a minute ago, but like you can't really get much of a read from a second pick or even a third pick, you know, because there's you could be looking at a pack and you've just been past... I mean, I'm not going to say Obsidat because you, if you pass Obsidat, you're signalling the guy to your left is a bit silly, really. But say, say, say you open a pack... And it's got Boros Reckoner and the foil of that. Right? Mm-hmm. Which, which one are you taking? Personally? Yeah, just randomly. Or whatever you think. <sighs> Ooh, the Reckoner? Right, so you pass Obsidat to the guy to your left. Yeah. And he's looking at it, he's going, ah, excellent, white and black's open. But do you know what? White's not open. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But he's... He's going to say, well, that's a pretty clear signal, you know, but actually, because of things like foils, it's just going to look like you've taken a common and you're like, why is he taking a Well, you're going to realise it's a foil if it's obvious. Anyway, you know what I'm saying? You can get confusing signals just because of the way the packs are, and you can't read a lot into the first and second picks. Yeah. But if you are, if you are getting past where the best Boros cards are like Firefish Striker, Zarachi Tiger, Say Scorchwalker, you're not getting past the best cards. Yeah. Then you can maybe assume that the better cards in those colors have been taken by someone. Yeah. Earlier, like earlier on the table, like they've taken the Sky Knight Legionnaire, they've taken the Boros Elite. Yeah, I mean the whole thing comes down is what's in the packs is completely random, you know. So it's really hard to get a read. Early on, I mean, like you can even get trick, sort of trick, trick, trickery going on with uh, people deliberately sending misleading packs, where there may be two or three equally powerful creatures. Say, I don't know, you might have a Boros Guild Mage, uh, don't know, Boros Guild Mage, Sky Knight Legionnaire, and a. Give me another card here in my head. I don't know. True Fire Paladin. No, no, because he's he's fighting he's fighting red. red. Yeah, say like a Kingpin's pet. So you're looking at Guild Mage, which is the best card in the pack. Skynet Legionnaire, which is pretty good as well, but also the Kingpin's pet, and you might decide to take the Kingpin's pet, and then the guys down line for will go, ah, Boris is open, that's fine. And one of them will take the Guild Mage, and the next one will get Sky Knight Legionnaire and say, ah, Boros is open, that's fine. And you've got two people competing for uh, Boros, and then you're pretty happy because you're sitting in another guild or an archetype, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying that the signals can be confusing, you know. So we're not really selling the signaling idea, I've got to say. No, no, I mean, it's really important, but the... It's just, it's really important to take everything, but everything you see with pinch of salt, and it's like I was saying earlier, the draft's kind of fluid, and the information you get builds up over time, so you can't just jump on it, onto something, and you say, oh man, that's like, fifth picks, sun, uh, Skynet Legion, or Boris must be fantastically open. It might not be, there might be two or three Boris players up, up line from you. You know? Yeah, I mean, but- s- signaling comes more into play during the mid picks. Yeah. In the middle of the pack, because that's when the, enough of the good cards have been taken away that you can get a feel for what's being drafted. 
Yeah. And I mean, signaling is only really relevant if you're drafting reactively. But it's also kind of relevant if you're drafting, if you're forcing a, forcing a archetype or, or guild or deck, then you've got to be able to recognize when you're being cut. And if you find that, uh, the most powerful cards, and it's actually an interesting thing, talking about power levels of cards, being able to recognize the different power levels of cards is something you need to be able to do. So having knowledge of the set's important, knowledge of the archetypes within the set's important to be able to get a read from any sort of signal you're receiving, you know? Yeah. Because, I mean, it's all about finding what the best colours for your seat are, where you're sitting at the table. And it'd be great if you could turn to your opponents, either side of you, and say, hey, mate, I'm drafting Boros, can you please stay out of that? But you're not allowed to do that. I mean, there must be rules preventing that kind of thing, Craig. Yeah, um, if we're talking about competitive or professional RELs, the PDQs or Grand Prix or Pro Tours, if you happen to get that far, to be honest, if you have the Pro Tour, hopefully you know this already. Uh, during a draft, you cannot communicate at all. Yeah. Um, I believe the only exception to that is if a tournament official asks you something, you can respond to them. So if a judge says something to you, you can respond to them, but if you can't talk to any other player, you can't reveal hidden information, which i.e. the picks you've chosen during yeah. the draft. I mean, here's, here's one thing, right? When you look through your pack of cards, and say you've made your pick, and there's two uh, cards left in the pack, and one of them's in your uh, deck, one would be nice in your deck, say it's the Sky Knight Legionnaire again, but you've also got a Skarg Guildmage in there. Would it be against the rules to say, put the Scar Guildmate at the front of the pack and then pass it to your opponent like that? So that one was more prominent? Um, Would that be a, an illegal sort of communication? Right, so there, there's... Two, okay, we're, we're talking about... Two, see, when you're talking about something like that where you're trying to pass communication and wondering if there's a penalty to it, hmm. there's an important difference between regular REL, which is what your Friday Night Magic, your pre-releases, your games day are, and the competitive and professional realm you're going to see at big tournaments, where yeah. there's sort of serious prizes on the line. Because in regular realms, your Friday Night Magic, there's not this great, there's not a great, like, 17 page document, I think is what the infraction penalty guide is. <laughs> okay. That does not apply. There is two sides of paper, which basically yeah. says, if somebody's doing something wrong, the judge should go along and fix it and just explain to them what they've done wrong. So if you accidentally draw two cards, then you kind of go, well, you know, you weren't meant to draw two cards, you were meant to draw the one, be careful next time. And then, you know, the judge will like sort of take one away and put it back somewhere in your deck or something like that, you know. Yeah. So, what's, what's, so what's, my question is, is that wrong though? Is it, would that be considered against the rules? A regular, REL, when you're passing your pack, you're probably just passing it all in one big clump to the person next to you. Yeah. And if you're wanting to put a card in front, then that's your prerogative, and there's probably nothing wrong with that unless, I don't know, you're doing this all the time, I would say. But yeah. even if you are, it's going to be hard to pick up on. Like, say I'm sitting, well, say we're sitting next to each other, for example, and and I'm on your right, and we both know that I'm the best drafter. 
Let's, really? just, let's just assume the scenario, okay? Okay. And um, you know, I so what I'm doing, I'm looking through my packs and I'm going, right, I'll take the best card for me. And then I'm looking through again, going, right, what do I want Steve to draft? And I put that at the front or whatever and pass it to you, and then you take that. Um Yeah, that's cheating. That's colluding. Yeah. And if the judge is able to pick up on that, um you can get disqualified even at Friday Night Magic. Yeah. Now, here's an interesting thing. The uh, It's generally in your advantage for the people around you to know what you are drafting, right? Because that means they'll, they'll stay out of it and you'll hopefully be in the best deck. But what, I, what you'll see a lot of people do is they'll uh, put sift through their hand with the, the, the pack and bring the cards they're considering to pick towards the front of the pack as they're looking at it and then they'll decide which one they want. Now, some people will then shuffle the pack and pass it on. Now, why would you do that, Craig? Because <laughs> you don't necessarily want to tell the person next to you what you're doing. Yeah. And like, it's not maybe not just that, but it's maybe as well you don't want to tell them what the best cards in the pack are if they don't already know. I suppose this is also true. I mean, yeah. obviously you're having to make some assumption that they can play the card you think is the next best. Yeah. You know, like you put the syndicatized at the front, but they're actually in gruel. Well, that's the complete opposite side of the color wheel as far as the guilds go. So. Yeah. So where do you stand? Would you do you shuffle your pack before you pass it, or do you just hand it as is? I generally shuffle nowadays. Like I never used to, but now I do because I do that thing where you know I take the best two, three cards for what I want to draft at the front, and I don't yeah. really want to be necessarily shouting that information to the person next to me. Yeah, especially in pack two where you can still get hated during pack three. Um, yeah. but sometimes I will put cards in front, but that's more that's because a it's a regular rel. Um, where it's not quite so strict in communication. Like, if you want to talk during the draft, you can, but you can't communicate your picks. Yeah. Um, like, if I open my first pack and I slam something down the table and go, oh, yeah, I'm so happy I got that card. Well, that's fine. But if I suddenly went, yeah, I'm so happy I got, you know, Aurelia, that's not so fun. But sometimes yeah. I'll put cards at the front just to kind of go, have a look at this card. It's so cool or something like that to the yeah. person next to me. Um, quite, often, quite often you'll get the I can't believe this is going so late yes. and then that, you know, that'll be the first card you look at when you pick the pack, the pack up or something like that but that's just that's just banter isn't it it's not really tactical no I mean yeah and also I tend to put foils at the front of their kind of cool foils like wow it's a Sky Knight Legionnaire foil awesome I'll put that at the front just to kind of yeah, let the person next to me have a cool you know a good look at it first or whatever yeah a bit, bit of excitement ooh indeed yeah yeah, you're nice like that, Craig. S- spreading the love. Thank you. <laughs> I do try. So, um, we've talked about receiving signals, but maybe covering a bit about giving signals. So, you'll sometimes see on Magic Online, as, I mean, this is a really, uh, small example of it. You'll get, cause Magic Online, you don't take lands out. The, the, the basic land is still in the pack when it goes round. When we draft, some take, well, when we draft, we usually take all the basic lands and tokens out. A lot of people do that. But uh, on Magic Online, this gives you the opportunity on the very last pick to take land. Say, for example, it's a your truck. Say you're put you're in Orzov, and you're pretty sure that's where you want to be. 
And their last pick is something like... What's about rubbish, Craig? Verdant Haven. Yeah, okay. Verdant Haven, it's okay, but it's, you're not playing in Orzov. And the basic land, you could take the basic land and pass the Verdant Haven, and hopefully the person sitting next to you will say, oh, well, the person next to me at least isn't in green. So maybe they'll feel safer about going in green and leaving your black and white alone. Another another example of that would just be, it's not as quite as aggressive as forcing, but cutting cards. So... Uh, when you're looking at a pack, it's fairly mediocre, and you might have, say, a combat trick or something, but you maybe won't play because you might already have one, or some, you know, it's not, it's not something you're going to play, probably, but it's in your colours, and there's nothing else in the pack for you. It's sometimes worth cutting those cards, even if you're not going to play them. It's, it's similar to hate drafting, but it's in, in that you're not going to be playing those cards and they're going to be sitting in your sideboard being useless, but you're trying to manipulate the people around you by cutting colours and making those colours less available. Yeah. On signalling as well, when you're draft or when you're drafting reactively and you're giving and receiving signals, when do you decide to either lock yourself into a colour, say like you're, you're, you've not got us by that, or, or you've not got the Reckoner, you've got fairly mediocre cards, or fairly average and at what point in the draft, Craig, do you decide you are in that and you're not coming out? Like, when is it too late to change colours or change decks? I think I try to lock myself into one colour by pick nine or ten. Yeah. What I'm starting to once once the cards have wheeled once, I should hopefully have been, I should hopefully have an idea and have signaled reasonably well enough that I want to be in at least one color. By yeah. maybe the third or fourth pick of the second pack, uh, I should hopefully be in a guild. Yeah. And by the end of the second pack, I should hopefully know whether I'm playing a guild or two guilds. Yeah, shard. Yeah, uh, well, a shard or a wedge, depending yeah. on uh, what you've picked. But yeah, um, that I mean, in this guild model, that's how I would do it. In say a more regular set, like um, in a strat or dark ascension, I would say yes. Again, near pick nine or ten, I should be in the first color, and by the fifth pick in the second pack, I should hopefully have declared my second colour, and then that's my two colours because hopefully I'm not playing three because it's a bit, maybe a bit less viable in those sort of more regular, less multicoloured sets. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I suppose what I'm getting at is the uh, it's what I was saying before about how you are completely responsible for what you pass to the player to your left, so you're dominating what the person to your left is getting, and the player to your right the player yeah. to your right is controlling what you're getting. And that's in pack one. And in pack two, it's reverse. You're controlling what the person to your right is getting. And then in pack three, it's back to where it started again. So for you in your seat, the person to your right is far more important for the whole course of your draft than the person to your left because he controls what you're getting for two whole packs. So... What what I was thinking is that when you're 
drafting, often what happens is pack one goes a certain way and you may be thinking, well, it's all a bit mediocre, and, you know, and then pack two comes and obviously say the guy to your left has been cutting Boros hard, right? So you've got yourself into some sort of mediocre sort of Simic thing or a uh, Demir thing. And then pack two comes and suddenly you're getting tons of great Boros cards. Now obviously what's happened is the person to your left, the person to your right, sorry, has cut all these cards off. Everybody else has reacted to the signals and has kept clear those colours or has just been unable to get into those colours. So now when it comes to pack two and they've cemented themselves into the colours they want to be or the guild or the archetype they want to be playing, these cards which were scarce in the first pack may start coming later than you would expect. And a lot of people will get excited and say, oh, look, I didn't realise that Boros is incredibly open. What a surprise. It didn't seem like that earlier. I think I'm going to be Boros. So you jump into Boros pack two. And, of course, you can. it doesn't mean don't take the best cards because of this. Because, you know, just because Boros is cut doesn't mean you can't splash for a Cinder Elemental or some other really powerful thing. But I'm just saying be very aware that Sometimes in pack two, things look open, which maybe aren't. Because when it comes back to pack three, you're going to get punished when that Boros player who's been starved of his Boros picks for the pack two is now soaking up everything. And now you've got some mishmashed four-colour mess of a deck. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what basically was on a bit. Just, be, just saying, you know, be careful about switching colour in pack two, because you get mixed signals, but... Yeah, you do send mixed signals, and you need to remember who's in charge, which is the person to your right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, right, one other thing which we can talk about is player bias. Now, this only works if you know the people who are sitting at the table with you, or at least some of the people who are sitting at the table with you. Yeah. So, if you happen to be the lucky person playing uh, Avacyn Restored, and you happen to be sitting near me, then you already know what I'm picking. You already know that I'm coming to the table with a goal in mind. That goal is called Mono Black. I know that everybody else doesn't like Mono Black. I know how to play Mono Black. I am playing Mono Black. Come hell or you know, um, yeah. Was it hell, hell and high water? Is that it? Um, is it hell or high water? Hell or high, hell and high water. Both of it. Damn it. Um, <laughs> I am. That's you know, just called steam, Craig. Steam vents. See, it all comes <laughs> back to is steam. it in the end. Uh, yeah, if, if you're sitting near me in AVR, you know I'm going mono black. And yeah. you can use that information to your advantage, to my disadvantage, both, either, you know. Yeah, point to note, if you're sitting next to Craig and you're playing Return to Ravnica, he's probably playing Is it? It'd be more accurate to say I'm playing red, but I will probably try Is it? This is also mm. true. So if you happen to be at your local Friday Night Magic, I know the people at the table with you, especially the people right next to you, this can be a good advantage if you want to try forcing a deck, because you may know they're going to force a deck, or they're going to avoid certain colours, and you can use that information to your advantage. Yeah, I mean, it's not just Friday Night Magic players are susceptible to that. I mean, you take uh, like Louis Scott Marks is a really sort of famous example of somebody who really prefers to play blue control decks. Um, so it's something that everyone's susceptible to. Everybody's got the preferences, so you know, it's just good to know the people you're playing with. Yeah. 
And if you got Steve to your right, then you know not to trust any signals you get whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, because I'm I'm usually jumping, jumping. See, it's not because I'm jumping, jumping about colours of that. It's because I'm drafting some silly deck that I've thought of that needs very specific cards, and they're going, "What? Why are you passing me these?" And it's like, well, you Indeed. know those, you know those things I wanted. <laughs> so f- feel free to use knowledge of the players at the table to your advantage. Because if you don't, someone else is going to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you, if, if you know something about the people you're sitting next to, use that. But again, don't put the blinkers on. Don't just assume, just because you're sitting next to me and it's AVR, that I am going to be mono black. Because who knows? Maybe I get past really good cards outside of mono black. Maybe I'll surprise you for once. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in general, at the table, there will be people who are forcing decks. And. The idea of drafting reactively is to figure out if one of them's sitting next to you, or two places up from you, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that's basically it, isn't it? Yep. I yeah. think I think we've covered that topic reasonably well. I think so. But then again, we would think that. It was us that done it. Indeed. Ah. Shall we move on to our perennial regular feature? Oh. Name that card. Name that card! I'll begin. Oh. I am ready for once. I have a card picked and everything. Oh dear. I, uh, I okay, right. I think I'll start with the flavour text. Right, okay. Um, just to see if how good you are or not. We'll see. <laughs> the old gods awoke and sent fingers of fire to see what was left of the old ways under the endless city. And that is by Dreva Gruel Storyteller. Hmm. It's not five alarm fire. What's five? Uh, yeah, it's five alarm fire. That's five alarm fire. Is that? It is not five alarm fire. Hmm. However, I will tell you that it is red, just like nice. five alarm fire. So cool. You're in uh, the area, right? So it's going to be something silly and obscure. It's not going to be anything good. It's either going to be something rare or something rubbish. You can have so, rubbish rares. Yeah, or, or a rubbish rare. It's going to be a rubbish rare, I can tell you. Uh, dear. Right, I am going to take a guess at... Hmm, I don't know. I want to... I want to say... Oh, I'm not going to say it. I don't think it is. Okay, Tin Street Market. It is not Tin Street Market. Okay, okay. Okay. Who was that artist you got to uh, draw on your playmat again? Svetlin Velenov. Yeah, the artwork is by Svetlin Velenov. Ah! I know what it is! I know what it is, Craig! Okay. Cinderella Mental. Yes, it is the Cinderella Mental. Yay! <laughs> which cool. has the second best name of all the cards in this set, I would say. Yeah. Well, just because it's Cinder Elemental, but it just comes out of Cinderella Mental. Yeah, Cinderella Mental. Uh, with, with Murder Investigation being my personal favourite for really? card games. Yeah, yeah, Murder Investigate. I like everything about Murder Investigation. Yeah, nah, you're right. It's cool. The little CSIs come out. Yeah. I don't, I don't really like playing it much. I, I've yet to play Murder Investigation, which I am I'm gutted about. But all, all it really needs is a great uh, Kane quote at the end, 
But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't. But anyways, yes, Cinderella Mental, you got it in three clues. I think I did good there. I got it in flavor text, color, and... Artist. Artist, yeah. Although, the reason, I should tell you the reason I... I uh... I'm guessing he had the picture nearby, or he, you saw someone sign inside no, no, the corridor. It's because he has a funny name, Craig. Oh, Svetlin Velenov. Yeah, Svetlin Velenov. And, you know, last week, I thought, you know, I can't remember his name suddenly. And so I had to find a card which had been done by him. Uh-huh. And that card... Was Cinder Elemental. Cinder Elemental, and it's sitting in front of my computer still. <laughs> Fair enough. Ah, <laughs> uh, well. Yeah. Cool. Uh, oh, I get to ask you a question now. You do indeed, yes. Right, okay. Uh, I am looking at a Gatecrash card. This one is uncommon. Well, that does narrow it down slightly. Um, let's have a guess at Demir Charm. It is not, but what I'll do is I'll give you the flavour text. Okay. Right. Even the bitterest enemies of the Burning Tree Clan respect the strength of Bori... Hold on. Bori Rule. Bor Grigmos. Bor Bori Gmos. Bori Bor. I've never actually had to say that. Out loud. Bor, it's Borborigmos. Bor Borigmos. Borborigmos. Borborigmos's rule. Shall I read that again? Try that again. Yeah. <laughs> Even the bitterest enemies of the Burning Tree Clan respect the strength of Bori. No, Borborig. <laughs> All right. Borborigmos. I think. Bor, yeah. Bor. Bor- okay, sorry, can Borigmus. I stop you there? Is Bor- it- Borigmus's rule. <laughs> it's Bor- Bor- Borigmus's rule. Alpha authority. Yay! Yeah! <laughs> Man! Oh, dear God. <laughs> you need to pick flavour text you can pronounce in future. I know, I didn't think that far ahead. I just thought that was a little bit obscure, though. Ah, you know? <sighs> oh, dear. Oh. Borborig, I swear it's Borborigmos. I'm gonna to have to double check this now. Borborigmos. Borborigmos says. Borborigmos. Borborigmos. Right, okay, I've said it too many times. Borborigmos, yeah. Are, are, cool. are, are you done? You yeah. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> do, do you know what Borborigmos is? It's a cyclops. No, 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 sorry. It's a, it's an English word. Right. Separate from magic, it has it has its own separate meaning outside of you know Gros leader. What, was he like a um, Welsh giant or something? No, Borborigmos is a sound your stomach makes when really? like, you're hungry. Apparently, <laughs> so uh, w- 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 when your belly rumbles, that uh, is... you know, I have no problem pronouncing that. <laughs> exactly that that is that is Borborigmos. Yeah. Um, okay. Borborigmos. Okay. Cool. Bor- I've got my head around it now, Craig. You sure? Yeah, I think so. Right. Shall we move on to another topic? Yeah. <laughs> right. So we have talked to you about... Hey, wait, wait, wait. Who won that? I did. You sure? Actually. Uh, well, well, how many clues did you give me? You gave me uncommon and a uh, flavour okay. text. I, I gave you... Flavour text, colour. Colour, flavour text, oh, and okay. artist. Yep. Okay. You gave me artist as well. Okay. Fair enough. Now, you know what this actually means. Is that you four up, Craig? I have four and a half out of four points. 
Wait, did I just have one? Or did I have two? Uh, you, uh, you have two because we were, <laughs> so we put to the vote who won last week because we didn't actually decide that at the time. Yeah. And the result was we both did, so we both got a point. Yeah. So I believe this, yes, this ends up as four and a half to two out of four. Way. So I've won the first round, second round. Okay, Craig, I, I, I am going to propose a variation of name that card for next week, for the next four points. Are you, are you sure? Cause do you, do you really want to mess with perfection? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. Right. Okay. So in the style of the Hobbit, okay, name that card for the next four points has to be in the form of a riddle. Oh my goodness. So, so it's <laughs> come up with a riddle for the, which describes the card adequately enough so that somebody might have a reasonable guess at it. Oh my goodness. What do you think? What do you think? I think I am rubbish at writing riddles. <laughs> and this will be an abomination unto man. Okay, we'll, 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 we'll have an experiment next week. And if, it, if right. it's horrible, then we'll just go back to the old format. Okay. Okay, we'll try for next week. <laughs> but I need listener feedback on how bad the riddles are. Yeah, okay. Vitally. Okay, okay. Where were we? Uh, second topic. Yeah, second topic. What are we talking about now, Craig? Crap. Oh my god. Borigamogamos. <laughs> Borigamogamos, Craig. <laughs> are we good now? Okay. My tongue doesn't work anymore. Right, we've spoken about drafting tactics. Now we're going to talk about drafting formats. Yay. Now, I'm sure everybody is quite aware of drafting as a limited format. You get three boosters and you open them up one at, one at a time, you take a card, you put it down in front of you, you pass the pack. This is what we've been speaking about for the last however long the episode has been so far, at least. Yeah. The regular drafting experience. But there are many more drafting experiences. Well, let's, start with, let's just start with Rochester drafting. Okay. So, so Rochester drafting used to be something which we saw at Pro Tours, I believe. Hmm. Um, it was certainly seen at a competitive level. In fact, when drafting was first sort of formed as an as a concept, as something to do, rather than just I buy magic pack, I open magic pack, I get cards. Well, hey, you know, before uh, when this was getting formed, Rochester drafting was the preferred idea. Uh, was the preferred way of drafting. And this idea of just opening a pack, taking a card, passing it along, that was the weird concept. So, with Rochester Draft, what you do, you sit around the table with your seven friends, so ideally, um, you each have three boosters, but what happens, the first person will open their booster, and they'll lay out their booster face up in the middle of the table. So you will see my rare, my three uncommons, my ten commons, and my land. And going around the table, you one at a time will pick a card. So I, I, I open my booster, lay it out, I take the rare, presumably, assuming it's good, otherwise I take whatever is the best card I feel like, and I put it in front of me face up. Then the person to my left gets to pick a card from the center of the table, whatever is left. And we go around this way until it ends up with a person to my right. So the eighth person to pick will have taken the eighth pick. And then you reverse the order. So the person who picked the eighth card will also pick the ninth card. Yeah. And then the person who picked seventh will also pick tenth. The person who picked sixth will also pick eleventh. So you basically go around in a circle and then go back again. 
Yeah. This will mean the person who picks second will also pick 15th and pro- presumably get the basic land. And then they open their pack and you do the same thing again. Yeah. So this is a much more skill-intensive format because you can see what everybody at the table is taking in every single pick. Well, it's maybe not true to say it's much more skill-intensive. It's definitely a different skill because like, the things we were talking about earlier don't really apply to this because you've got perfect information the whole time. Yes. So I, I, see, I see what you're saying. Like The person who has the greatest knowledge or the greatest person has a better understanding of the format or the actual uh, set that you're drafting is going to have a much bigger advantage, I suppose. Yes. Right, now, one of the problems of Rochester drafting, this is time-intensive. It can take <laughs> a lot longer to do this because, for one, you're not opening eight packs of the table and drafting them all simultaneously. So at that element, it's going to take a lot longer because you're doing one pack at a time. And then you've got to consider the fact that you can derive, you know, you have, as you say, you've got perfect information, you know what everybody else is drafting, and that will affect what picks you take. You know, because you want to avoid p- taking from people right next to you because they can, again, still influence your picks just as much, especially the people who are sort of to your left, because they almost get sort of like double picks before they come back to you. It can really affect it. So you need to be, you're very aware of who, or what people around you are taking. So it is time intensive. Uh, ideally, you should probably do this under a pretty strict clock if you can. Like ideally, you know, just say like, you put the boosters up, you get 30 seconds to look at them and then everybody has to like make like picks within 10 seconds or something like that. Mm. Now I've only played Rochester drafting as a two man and a three man experience. I don't recommend playing a three-man where it sort of goes player one, two, three, three, two, one, one, two, three, three. It's not quite nice, but two-player Rochester drafting is pretty interesting. Yeah. Because when you open up the pack, you've got the choice. Do you take the best card and then let the person opposite you take the best two-card combo, or do you break apart the combo or something like that and try and then try to make it yeah. yourself later on? It's... That's, that is definitely where the skill intensive when there is just the two of you. Yeah, it's like, do I give him Soliton and the Heavy Arbalast, or... Yeah. <laughs> or do well, I take the Soliton and hope that he doesn't take the Arbalast and I can... Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's definitely interesting. One thing about playing a two-player Rochester, you're definitely playing four, if not five colours. So yeah. the fixing yeah. is really important in two-player. Um, one good thing about Rochester drafting, though, if you can... Now, I have heard that some people have done do this in real life. Now, say you want to teach people how to draft because yeah. you're, you're you're more experienced at drafting, and some new people are coming to the store, and you've got time. This is kind of important. If you Rochester draft with seven good players, say, and let other people watch, they will learn how to draft. This is probably the best teaching tool on, on how to teach drafting. Yeah, if they can, so. if they can watch how you draft, and if if you need to, you can explain, like, why did I take Aurelius Fury over, I don't know, Boros Reckoner, if they were both in the pack or something like that. Yeah. And you can explain why and what you're thinking. And if you if you even pretend that the Rochester draft is in a Rochester draft, but you're just seeing it blind, you may go, okay, well, I think, like, the best card here is this, and I think the person next to me is taking this because of whatever. It's a really great teaching tool. Yeah, because the the alternative to that is doing a normal draft and coaching somebody 
where they're sitting and sit behind them and say, take that because of this reason or whatever that reason is. But generally what that sort of sends in it is just pointing at a card and then them picking it and not really understanding it. And you can't really explain it at the time because the rest of the table will hear what you're saying. Yeah, because if you're if you're talking about it, then you're basically revealing what that player has yeah. to the rest of the yeah. table while you don't get that benefit from others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's Rochester drafting, which used to be done at the Pro Tour, but no longer, probably due to the time constraints. What other draft formats do we know of, Craig? Right, so keeping with R, uh, there's rotisserie drafting. Oh, now, that's... this generally only happens when you have a cube, or if you have a set. And I mean one of each card in a set, because what rotisserie drafting is, a bit like Rochester, you lay your... You know, the 15 cards out face up on the table, and you take it sort of one at a time. With rotisserie drafting, you're doing the same thing. You're laying all the cards up, uh, all the cards on the table face up, and going around in a similar sort of snaking format where it goes one to eight and eight to one. But, you're not just opening a booster and putting it on the table. You are putting your entire cube or an entire set on the table. Now, could you do this with, um, say you got a draft's worth of booster packs, open them all. And put them on the table. Yeah, you could do that. I mean, there is nothing to stop you from picking what <laughs> the rotisserie is. Usually, it is a cube or it's a set. So I may lay out like all of Return to Ravnica on the table, or maybe all of Return to Ravnica and Gatecrash. Yeah, there's nothing to stop you picking your own particular rotisserie, your own particular meat selection. I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. But usually, it is a set or a cube. And as I say. You go around the table, again, starting at player one, then player two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, one, two, three, and you keep going like that. So, again, there's advantages to being first, because you get the first pick out of everything. You can literally take the best card in the format, whatever that format happens to be, whether it's the cube or whether it's the sets. But then you're only getting a second pick number 16. Mm. So... It's, again, skill-intensive, because if you pick something really colour-intensive, you can be hated by 15 other picks before you get back. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is, again, time-intensive. It's going to take you a lot of time just to lay out the cards, let alone start picking them. But if you've got a day-free with your best friends, and you've got, what you know, you want to play your cube in a different way, or you want to play the set, and you've got one of each of the cards then this is a really cool way to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's something we really actually need to organise um, to do ourselves. Yeah, I think so. Because <laughs> these things. Yeah, because I've now got one of everything in Innistrad and Dark Ascension. Yeah, yeah. Which is a good format, I would say, to resistory draft, so... We should do this, Craig. We'll need, like, a whole day, though. Yes, we will need a whole day at a big table at a few friends. And some people. Yeah. Who also have a day. Ah, oh, people, people have days. The people we know, they're, it's not like they do anything during the weekend. It's not like they've got important things to do during <laughs> their lives at all. They're not busy like us, you know. This is true. Yeah. So what other, what other formats do you have, Craig? Right. So the last two formats I've really been talking about are sort of eight person formats, or at least more than two. I mean, sure, there's two player Rochester draft. I wouldn't do two player rotisserie draft. Um, that just seems like a lot of effort for not terribly much gain, but. Yeah. Say there is only the two of you. Maybe it's just you and your spouse, or you know, you and your partner, uh, or just you and your best friend in your flat, and you got nothing. You know, you got three packs each. Nothing better to do with the evening. Can't find any more friends to play with. 
um, then there are two person draft formats specifically for two people. Surprisingly. Indeed. So there is Solomon drafting and there is Winston drafting. Right, let's start with Solomon drafting. So what do you do with Solomon drafting? You need six boosters and you just open them all up, take out the land, take out the token, just like you normally do, and without looking at any of the other cards, shuffle all six boosters into one another. Okay? Interesting. Right. So at the end, you should have a big pile of 84 cards, which is all six boosters randomly shuffled into one another. Yeah. Now, the first player, however you determine that's your choice, takes the top six cards and divides them into two piles. Now, the piles don't have to be even, but there's going to be two piles. So if you want to do six and oh, or you want to do three and three, or any combination in between, you can. So you divide them into two piles, and then the other player chooses one of the piles to draft, and you get the other one. Ha <laughs> ha I see. So, so if you're used to the card uh, Factor Fiction, which is where you reveal five cards, you divide them in two, and then you, you know, your, your opponent divides them into two, and then you pick one, they, you know, the other goes to the graveyard. It's a bit like that, where you're choosing the division, but they're choosing how to conquer. I mean, it, it, it it's the same way as, as how I deal with pizza in my house. Whoever okay. cuts, whoever cuts the pizza in half isn't the person who chooses what half to take. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, you know, so if I cut two, if I cut two really uneven halves, then my, my wife's going to take the bigger slice of pizza than me. <laughs> and I'm the one who's going to suffer for not being able to divide in two very clearly. So it's a bit like that. You take the six cards, you divide them into two piles, and the other player will take one pile for themselves and you keep the rest. Yeah, and yeah. then the other person, so player B, then takes the top six cards off this this deck, again divides them into two, and then player A gets to choose what half. Yeah, and I really keep, like that. And you keep going back and forth... Um, until you're done, because as far as I know, 84 cards, when you're taking six at a time, is 14 picks. Nice. So you both get an equal amount of dividing, an equal amount of choosing first, and you're not left with any odd remainder. Now, if you want to do it with four cards, you want to do it with eight cards, you can. Just note that the last pick's going to be a bit odd numbered. Anyways. So that's Solomon drafting. Cool. Winston drafting... Starts off similarly, similarly, where again, you open all of your booster packs, you take out the land, you take out the token, and you shuffle them all into another 84 card deck. Then what do you do? You create, you take a, the card off the top, face down, and put it into a pile, and card off the top and put it into a pile, and card off the top and put it into a pile. So you should have your big deck of 81 cards, and three piles of one card each. You following me? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so you got big deck and then pile A, B, and C, each of a card. Player one gets to look at any of the piles of cards, which in this case is just the one card. So you, you look at the card, just revealing it to yourself, and decide whether you're taking it or not. Now, if you take it, then that's your pick, and you're done. If you don't take it, you put it back down face down, and you put one of the cards from the big pile of 81 on top of that. Yeah. So if you've looked at pile A and you don't take it, you put it back and you put another card on top of it. So pile A now has two cards. Do you get to see that card? No. Ah. Uh. And then you get to look at pile B or C, and if you look at it, you can decide to take it or not. And if you don't, then you put it back down, you put a card on top of it. So basically what happens, if you don't pick a pile, it gets one bigger with some card you don't know. Now, say say you do just p- take a pile. So maybe maybe I've looked at A and I didn't take it, and and I looked at C and I didn't take it, and I look at B 
and I decide, yep, yeah, I'll take B. Then you take B, and then you put, again, another card face down to make a new pile of B. So in this hmm. case, you know what one of the cards in A is, one of the cards in C is, but then the top cards in A, B, and C, you've got no idea. And then your opponent gets to go. Now, your opponent can choose to look at pile A or C and get to see two cards. And again, they choose wherever they want to keep it, or they don't want to add a card on top. So there's a... There's part of it is looking for the best card, but occasionally a pile's going to get big with just enough eh cards that yeah. you're going to take it. Or maybe that last card they put on top is really good, and then the rest is a sort of gravy. Yeah, just nice. Now, if you, if you look at all three piles and you actually decide, no, I don't want any of these three piles, you just take a card off the top of the big pile blind and just take that. So if you look and go, that's rubbish, that's rubbish, that's rubbish, you can just take blind, and hopefully you'll get something good. And then you just keep going until you run out of cards. Hey. It's a <laughs> then, you ha- make, then you make your deck, I presume. Yes, and then, <laughs> and then whether Solomon or Winston, yeah, you make your deck of the cards you pick. Now, because of the way either the piles are divided or the piles build up in Winston, you're maybe not both going to end up with an equal amount of cards. You may not end up with 42 cards, which is half of 84. Yeah. But and that's part of the, that's just part of the process of taking quality over quantity. Yeah, and and one one thing with this is that you're not going to have control over your rares in the same way that if either you were rare drafting at the end or whether you were drafting rares like a normal draft. Do you know what I mean, Craig? So like, yeah, the, the, you're not... one player could end up with all six rares from all packs. And that that is entirely possible. You're not definitely getting that sort of first choice of rares, which you get in Rotisserie yeah. or Rochester or regular drafting. Yeah. Regardless of whether you do rare redrafts or just if you rare draft, you know? Yeah. That is one thing to note. Does that have more variance? Possibly. But if yeah. there's only the two of you, it's a bit more interesting than just constantly passing the same two piles back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, and I, I suppose there's no reason why you can't redraft the rares at the end. No, no, indeed. Amongst friends. Yes, I presume if you're doing two-player, it's amongst friends. Otherwise, yeah. yeah. But we're not done. There are more draft formats. More? Yeah, so have you heard of backdrafting? I have heard of backdrafting. So backdrafting is a degenerate format, which is really, really nasty, and you should definitely play this with friends. So (laughs) in backdrafting, you can use any of the previous draft formats I've mentioned. And this is sort of just an extra layer on top of any any of them. So the idea with backdrafting is you want to draft the worst deck possible. Now, can I just be clear here, Craig? Are you drafting an actual deck, or is it just the most unplayable pile of cards you can get together? Well, yeah, let's, let's be honest. You don't really want to get a deck. You want to draft the most unplayable deck of cards. You want yeah. to be first picking Verdant Haven. And then you want to be second picking, I don't Why know. Why are you so down on Verdant Haven? Because it's a rubbish card. I like Verdant Haven. It gives you lives and it fixes your mana and it gives you ramp. Actually, yeah, Verdant Haven is really good in backdraft, so you should really avoid it. You want, you just want to pick the worst cards in all five colours, no mana fixing, lots of double mana, triple mana casting costs if you can, and make the most unplayable pile of magic cards ever. <laughs> now, now, why on earth would you want to do this? Why on earth are you deliberately handicapping yourself in a draft? Well, because you're not playing with the cards you draft. Once you finish drafting, you put all eight pile. You randomly distribute all eight piles. Now it's your choice whether you 
sort of put them all down in the middle of the table and sort of go, oh, that's one to eight, and then roll a dice and see who gets what. Or if you just, I don't know, pass the deck to the opposite side of the table from you. So if you're player one, then player five gets your deck and you get player five's deck. And then you just play as normal, trying to make the best out of the worst situation possible. Now, Craig, who's the winner? Is it the person who made the worst deck or is it the person who won with the worst deck? Well, there's different ways of scoring it. You can score as normal, so a win's three points and a draw's one point and a loss is zero points, or you can have that scoring system as well as you get three points whenever the deck you drafted loses (laughs) and one point when that deck draws and zero points when that deck wins. So you end up with double points at the end. So yeah, if if you end up with 18 points at the end, that means you've won all three of your games and the deck you drafted lost all three of its games. <laughs> now this is definitely something you should do with friends because I think otherwise you may just get frustrated yeah. in all honesty. Uh, this probably isn't something you can do all the time. But if you want to do something quite off the rails... Yeah. I mean, Jenga's uh, better suited to something like a corset or something like that, or, I mean, like, with Ravnica, it could be completely terrible, couldn't it? Um, yes, you're playing five colour, and all your colours are require two different, all your cards require two different well, types of mana to cast. And- well, you may think drafting all the gold <laughs> cards is bad because it requires, the mana intensity is so high, but remember, the gold cards are also the best. Yes, it's true, because they're, yeah, I suppose. Like, if you've got a two-mana, like, something like Burning Tree Emissary, which requires two mana, but two specific colored mana, can arguably be said to be better than, say, Syndicate of Tithes. Mm, yeah. Ar- arguably. Uh, and Syndicate of Tithes only requires one colored mana, one colorless. Now, I, okay, I, okay, maybe- Imagine you're draft- doing this with, uh, all three sets we're going to end up with. You could potentially have ten different combinations of colours on cards. Okay, Maybe that, that cards is when it gets truly ugly. <laughs> yeah. But again, remember, gold's going to be powerful, and the last picks are still going to be powerful. Like, you are going to pick Obsidat for Yes, yeah, he's, he's still coming around. Somewhat, like, if somebody opens Obsidat, someone is drafting Obsidat. It's just the 14th pick, not the first. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how many times we said Obsidat during this podcast. <laughs> maybe that, maybe that's just the episode title, Obsidat. Versus Borygmoring. Bor- <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Anyways. Um, so yes, that is backdrafting. Cool. But wait, there's more. What? Do you remember episode two? Yeah. Don't open boosters. It's the name of that. Oh, yeah. So, this is not a draft format, but this is a limited format. Minimaster. Yay, Minimaster's awesome. So, what do you require for Minimaster? You require a single booster. And hands. And basic lands. So, what you do, you open your booster without looking at it. So, face down, or face up. can't remember, actually, which way it is for Gate Crash. Remove yeah. the token of the land. You should know where it is in the deck, uh, in the booster at any rate. You add in three of each basic land, three plains, three swamps, three islands, three mountains, three forests, in case you didn't know what the basic lands were. Shuffle it up, and then play with your friends. Yay! So you end up with a... No, sorry, you don't take out the land. I made a mistake. You just take out the token. So you end up with a 30-card deck. 16, at least, of it is land. The 15 basic you put in, plus the one basic in the booster. 
And then, yeah, you just play with friends. Ideally in a multiplayer format, I highly recommend playing Minimaster multiplayer. It's a lot better. Yeah. Um, so there's slightly different rules. One is, you can only mulligan if you draw an old land hand or a no land hand. Now the reason that you can't mulligan regularly is because you're not supposed to know what's inside your booster. It's supposed to be a surprise. And if you play with the Magic Celebration, then you've already played Mini Master. It's also known as Pack Wars. But yeah, it's a surprise, so you never know what's going to come up. And the other thing is, you cannot lose due to mill. So if, you, if you're trying to draw from an empty library, you just don't draw. Mm. But you continue your turn as normal. And yeah, it's a fantastic format. It's fun, it's quick, and the big thing which I, I argued during episode two, or you argued during episode two, we both argued, did we? I believe so. Is that it gives you something to do with your boosters. Like at the end of the night, if you just get a booster and you open it up and then you go, oh, and it's breeding pool, yay! That was 15 seconds of enjoyment you got right there. Or you may have went, oh, it's Scar Goliath, ah. Then congratulations, you just gave yourself 15 seconds of disappointment. <laughs> now, if you play Mini Master, you're playing Magic, which is fun. And when you pull your rare, you go, oh, it's Scar Goliath. Oh, but actually, if I play Scar Goliath, I've got the man, I play it. Yeah, now I'm going to win the game. Yeah, and you're excited. It's about the only time it's good in Mini Master. It's the only time you've got the man and the time to play it. Scar Goliath's <laughs> a good card. You just, you're, you're just hating on yeah, it. But, um, I, I don't like it. But yeah, the, it, it gives you something to do with your boosters. You don't need three, so it doesn't need to be a draft. You can just have a singular booster. And, it, and you know, it's better than just opening the booster and kind of going, oh, yeah, it's a rare wanted or, oh, it's a rare one. You know, it's, <laughs> now, more, it's more funny. Sorry, Craig, I was going to interrupt you. I've heard of a, a variation of Minimaster. Ooh. Uh, now, it won't be everybody's cup of tea, but it's, it, it, it's almost, well, I would actually say it, it is gambling. But probably no more than playing a draft and redrafting rares or playing a draft and winning some sort of prize. So this version of Minimaster, I think they just call it suicide drafting. I could be wrong. Okay. Or suiciding or something like this. Anyways, and, and the idea is you play Minimaster one-on-one with someone and the winner gets the other person's pack. Okay. Right, and this is without knowing what's in the pack. Right. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting twist on it. And, it's, yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm convinced I want to give away my boosters. Yeah, but, but the thing is, it's, it's, it's a calculated risk, Craig. It's do you feel confident that you can you can win a booster? It's, I mean, it's a flip of a coin, really, isn't it, when you're playing Minimaster? But it just adds that element of excitement. Fair enough. I'm not convinced, personally. I'm a big fan of Mini Master, but yeah, yeah, because it's so fun. Yeah, it, There's, it, I, I know of another uh, limited format you may not be a big fan of. It's uh, you better use the words Iron Man. I'm going to use the words Iron Man. Explain Iron Man then. Right. Well, I suppose it could be done as a draft or as as a sealed format, but the way it works, I mean, I, I suppose you would probably do it sealed. It would make more sense. But you could draft it, I suppose. But yeah, so you get your sealed deck as normal, make your deck as normal. Uh, but when you play your games, any card that leaves play for any reason, and I'm pretty sure that includes going back to your hand, I could be wrong. It's similar to how Commander works. Whenever it leaves the battlefield, 
you rip up the card. <laughs> oh dear lord. Yeah, so the, uh, the idea is that as you play, you get less and less cards, and the threat is that you've opened something fantastic. You've opened, uh, I mean, when we first heard of it, we were talking World Week, so the, there was potential to open Jace Mind Sculptors and be forced to rip it up when he left play. And then the winner of each round gets their opponent's entire pool, right? So then they've got that many more cards to make their next deck with to try and win their next round. And there would be some sort of prize at the end. But it's like you have to shred your card. So it's just a big waste of money. But it will test your... Uh, your nerve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they'll be like, oh, do I want to play this really powerful card with the risk of having it ripped up? I mean, it's like, so you're not going to be that keen to play your Bonfire of the Damned or Entreat the Angels, but you might want to save them for later and uh, use them to finish off opponents. You know, this is a balance between do I risk losing the cards? Because you're going to lose them anyway if you don't win the games or do I save them for later games, you know? I, don't, I suppose an alternative way of doing it is you just have a big box. I don't know what you'd call this. It would be less than Iron Man. It would be like slightly rusty Iron Man. But you have a big box and whenever you... Whenever your card leaves play, card gets chucked in big box. Winner gets the box. Dowing a draft does not publicly condone these drafting formats. <laughs> and highly advises you keep your money for smarter things. <laughs> but it would be cool, though, eh? I'm be... slightly more inclined with the throw the card back in the box than ripping up the card. Yeah, but that's Iron Man. <laughs> Look at me, I just ripped up Chase and I don't care. I'm solid. <laughs> You're mad. Yeah, I know, but uh, we're talking about alternative formats, you know? The, the, this is an alternative format if you happen to be loaded and have no care for making other people at the table cry. Well, you know, you see, this is it's all risk versus reward, Craig, and for these sort of tournaments, there needs to be a substantial prize on offer to make it worth ripping up your cards. I suppose so. That's all. It's, that's not the sort of thing you'd probably play with your friends. <laughs> Okay, so those were alternate drafting formats. Hey. Right, I I think I wish to go on a slight tangent. Okay. So we've spoken quite, uh, quite a lot about different drafting formats. We, we've spoken today about regular drafting. Yeah. Last week, uh, or even the week before, we had quite a in-depth discussion on Sealed. Yes, we did. And now we've covered a number of different alternate draft formats. But there is one glaring omission we have not talked about in any great depth. Which is Cube. Oh, yes, yeah, it's true. Oh, me and, me and Dan talked about Cube when you were off that one time. Right, okay, maybe Brief, this is, briefly. Maybe Brief. this is why it's not in my, my, my memory very well. Yeah, yeah. But one of my New Year's resolutions, if we were, if we remember we, st- we made those, I oh, was planning God, to, we? yeah. <laughs> so one of my New Year's resolutions was I wanted to make a Cube this year and play it. Cause there's yeah. no real point having a Cube if you're not going to play it. So, I was wondering whether people would be interested in hearing brief segments each show um, for the next few weeks about me building a cube. Yeah. So, I mean, we could talk about how to play cube, and we could talk about uh, drafting cube and what sort of archetypes to look for and stuff like this, but 
people may be interested in building a cube. Because it's a, it's a lengthy process. It's a personal sort of journey about what sort of game of magic you want to craft. Yeah. And it's not something I think, that, you know, you can't really, you could talk about building a cube in a single show, but it's maybe better just to spread it out and show the progression and so, show actually what happens as you're trying to build a cube. The sort of yeah. thought it's so along. What's a cube you aiming for, Crib? Well, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I haven't given it terribly much thought. I just, I just thought of this idea about t- having a little talk each week about what I'm doing with my cube and how I'm building it and the decisions I'm going through and okay, getting can, listener feedback as well. You know, can, if you, can I, can I, can I give you advice to start with from the back? Absolutely. Uh, you have to decide on your budget. This is something I've learned to my... Okay, that uh, that yeah. is something I've decided on. I'm going to only use cards I presently have in my collection. Right, okay, that's easier. Okay. But, you know, my collection isn't terribly small. It's quite. It's got quite a lot of cube-worthy cards already in it. Yeah. It's not like I'm just taking from, like, M13 onwards and trying to make the best out of a small deal. Sort of an extended cube. Yeah, I, I've got cards going back. I've got a lot of the additional product like Commander and Arch Enemy, Plane Chase, From the Vaults, Dual yeah. Decks and uh, Premium Deck Series. So, you know, I've got a lot of good cards. Yeah. So I think I can still make a very good cube. And, of course, it is personal as well, so there there is that element that I'm still going to pick cards that I prefer over others. Yeah. but. Yeah, I was just wondering if people were interested in hearing sort of the process of making cube, then let us know, and I will, well, talk about it as I'm building it. Otherwise, I may just do it in the background, and then one day I'll just suddenly go, and here's the cube I've made. Yeah, yeah. You know, some people may want to hear about it, some people may not. So let us know if if that's if that interests you. It's just an idea I've had. Let us know either way, because if you, if nobody says anything, I may just go ahead with it at any rate, and then you all have to endure that. So <laughs> uh, I'm leaving it with you to tell us uh, whether you want to hear about that. But I, sorry, I just thought I'd, I'd throw that in there whilst it was fresh in my mind. That's fine, Greg. That's nice. Right. Now, weekly question. Um, I don't really think we can pose a new question because um, we're recording this show and the previous show hasn't publicly gone out on MTGcast yet. So I'm not <laughs> quite sure how many people actually listened to episode 15 before, well, like, now, as we're recording. Yeah. So I think we'll leave the weekly question... As it is. So the weekly question was, what magic card provides you a great story? Um, you can hear what we had to say previous episode, episode 15. Um, but yes, let us know what magic card provides you a great story, and then we may read out uh, some feedback next show. Yay. And then we'll pose you a new question and keep going from there. Cool. Cool. Anything else to say before we wrap this show up? Uh, Bori... Bori Gurmus. Oh. <laughs> I'm see. I'm going to sit you down on a Friday and explain to you how to pronounce uh, this. No, I'm okay when I'm reading it. Like, well, obviously, I'm not okay when I'm reading it. But like, Bori, Bor. I want to say Bori. Start with for some reason. It's Bor Borigamos. Bor Borigamos. I'll, I'll, I'll have it. I'll, that's my task for next week. Bor Borigamos says. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Right. <laughs> Let us wrap this show up. Thank you to everyone for listening. Remember, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via Tumblr, Facebook, Gmail, and Twitter. Your hosts for this week were me, Craig, and you, Steve. That's me! The intro and outro music is by Kevin McLeod. The name of the song is The Cannery, and it is a royalty-free music license under the Creative Commons by Tributation 3.0. 
You can find more of Kevin's work at incomputech.com. Additional music was from the album Ghosts 1 through 4 by Nine Inch Nails, which is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike license, and you can find out more about Nine Inch Nails at www.nin.com. Borborygmos. Borborygmos, you see. See, you can say Borborygmos. <laughs> You're doing that deliberately. <laughs> A little bit. You monster. <sighs> nah, well, I was getting, I was saying Borry, 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 Bor- See, once you start saying Borry, it goes all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> he is one of the Borborygmos. two. I still need Borborygmos. I don't have any. I don't think I have any of those either. I also need um, Obsidat. Those are the two I need. Oh, God. I did a draft yesterday and second round played against the guy that had double of those guys. What, double Obsidat? Yeah. What? And I kicked his ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. Damn straight. Yeah, shame I lost the next round, but yeah. What can you do? What can you do? Oh, well. Because it was, it was, he went, uh, obviously that, and I killed it, and then he played obviously that again, like, next turn, I was like, and it stayed in play for ages, but what was happening was I had, uh, what's the, there was an angel that summoned scout, uh, no, sentry scout, fight angel thing, you can choose things before combat. Oh, and uh, angelic skirmisher. Skirmisher, that's it. And uh I was able to just give my guy's life link and he only had Obsidat. And he, he was blinking Obsidat in and out and able, he was able to attack for five, so he was effectively doing seven damage each turn, but I was doing uh seven points lifelink damage every turn. So I was keeping him at bay. Hmm. And uh then I eventually killed him and then he cast the get creature back from your graveyard to to play or to your hand spell with uh, uh, the the cipher one. Uh oh, midnight uh, recovery. Yeah, and he got it back and played it again. I was like, ah, there's technically three of those you've cast now. Jeez. And then he drew. He he, he was top deck at this point. And he played uh, the the uh, the keymaster rogue and got him back to his hand. And uh, so he had only had obviously that in hand. And what did I do? I made him discard it anyway. Whatever happened, I made him discard it. Oh, I know what it was. He was on low lights. And he couldn't take the damage from my ogre. You know the black ogre you get that makes you discard? Ah. Uh, the slate speed ruffian. He's not an ogre. He's a human. Is he human? No, he looks like an ogre. No. Well, he's human, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I had that guy, and he had to block him or die, and then obviously that got pinned after that. Right. I was like, hey, I killed three obs that in one draft match. That's pretty damn impressive. <laughs> yeah. So that, uh, the skirmisher is, the skirmisher is way up there. In my book. 